Here is trailer again. Um, that is glorious. Thank you, Matt. Um, before we start, I might just kick off in prayer, if that's right. Um, Lord Jesus, we welcome you this evening, and um, we ask that you would come and you would show us a little bit more tonight of who you are and how you speak into our culture today. Thank you that this evening is a chance to, to think about... Um, some of the contemporary lies that, um, that have seeped into our culture and sometimes into our churches. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly and you would, you would show us clearly who you are and why you blow all of the other offers out of the water. So we, we welcome you this evening, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. How, how often um, do we think about the true significance of, of what we believe. The true magnitude of the fact that there is no rival, there is no, no equal, and there is no other who reigns forever like the Lord Jesus. The glory of the fact that beauty and goodness and truth are not subjective imaginings of advanced apes, but they are realities. Because, because of who it is that we worship. The wonder of the fact that we have an eternal hope and that that's a solid hope. It's not a fairy tale. Christianity gives every single step we take an extra, an extra gravity. The author of the universe counts every single hair on your head and he loves you. There is an extra gravity to every step and Tim tonight has asked me to speak about the heresy that I think is probably one of the most powerful in our culture today. And if there's one thing that you leave with at the end of this, it would, I, would, I would love it if it was this, that I think Christianity blows away that. It blows all other offers off the table. There is literally nothing like it if it's true. And we need to be standing with the confidence in that as Christians. That, if there's one thing you take away from this evening... I pray it's that. And so Tim's asked me to speak about contemporary Gnosticism. And if you're normal, the, uh, <laughs> the answer to that question is contemporary Watsticism. Um, Louis last week helped us get towards an answer to that question by considering the Gnostic heresy in the early church. And Gnostics essentially believed that the outside world's um, authority figures, spiritual leaders, texts, etc., uh, lie to us, and that the only way we can really find our way to truth is by um, inner knowledge, 
some, some deep inner knowledge. Gnosis in the Greek literally means knowledge. And so in the era Louis was talking about last week, the Gnostics believed you could find salvation through individual knowledge rather than through the cross of Jesus Christ. Modern Gnosticism is the claim that the knowledge of reality is largely subjective and that really, for, for most of the things that we think really matter, so morality, um, eternity, etc., the only real, real pathway to truth is to look on the inside. It can be summarized into a simple slogan, do it your own way, live your own truth, live your best life. It's the gospel according to Frank Sinatra, the 1960s crooner, who, who, uh, who in his song My Way said, for what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels are not the word of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. It's very similar to the gospel according to Elsa from Frozen. <laughs> it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I want to suggest today that contemporary Gnosticism is probably the most insidious and powerful of the heresies that we have been looking at this term. It's the belief that calls us to self-expression, self-definition, self-actualization. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. To say the things he truly feels are not the words of one who kneels. I did it my way. There are good reasons this narrative appeals to us. Christianity has a profoundly anti-pharisaical impulse, profoundly liberating, and, and that means that in providing it's submitted to God, these things are good. It's good to self, uh, kind of find out who you are. Lots of, lots of elements of what culture is saying aren't in, in and of themselves bad. It's just that they need to be submitted under God. The problem with the gospel according to Frank Sinatra is that at its heart is ego. There's a profound arrogance, I think, to the idea that we define our own path, that we live our own truth, and that self-actualization is the pathway to the good life. It cuts diametrically in the opposite direction of Christianity. Because Gnosticism says, do it your own way, live your own truth, live your best life. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Just to repeat that, Gnosticism says, do it your own way, live your own truth and live your best life. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And, and so the heart of the sermon today is going to focus on why the Lord Jesus blows the offer of contemporary Gnosticism out of the water. I'm going to start with why uh, Gnosticism has risen in our culture and why I think it's quite dangerous. Then I'm going to look at how it has potentially um, seeped into some of our own theological reasoning as well within the church. And finally, I want to look at why we believe we have a deeper truth, why we think we can trust the Bible, and what that means for us. I think the church has been caught sleeping a little bit. Imagining that the major challenge to faith came from new atheism and um, philosophical challenges, we've missed the big shift in academic and um, wider culture. And that is, the big shift has been the deconstruction, the picking apart of truth, essentially. 
um, and the creation of a worldview which argues that the only pathway to knowledge is through self-knowledge. I'm not, I'm not going to mince my words. I think this is fundamentally counter to Christian reasoning. We find it deceptively attractive because it's been born out, of, born out of a Christian culture and so has many features which appeal to us, but its claims about the nature of truth are counter to Christianity. And if we're not careful, we could find that many of the things and the beliefs that we hold most dear are picked apart piece by piece by critical theory and post-structuralism. How do we get there? How do we get here? I'm going to give you a, a very short, potted history. Um, in the last four centuries, since the Reformation and Enlightenment, we've seen the focal point of philosophy become the self, focusing on us as individuals. It was a process that started with Luther, Martin Luther, rightly saying that um, basically each individual has to be born again, um, rightly challenging the medieval Christian uh, worldview and, and leading back to the focus on individual salvation. But then it's, it's, that's then become the dominant theme in philosophy, the individual, the self. And th then what we saw happen in the 18th century, and Tim, Tim spoke about this in his talk on Pelagianism a few weeks ago, was a theorist called Jean-Jacques Rousseau started to, to redefine what the self is. And he argued about, that, of, about the inner morality of human beings. He re rejecting the Christian ideas of sin, he argued that people are fundamentally corrupted by external circumstances, by their culture, by their families, and even potentially by their faith, and that the fundamental state of human nature is, without these things, would be one of moral purity. All that's needed in, that, in this worldview for the good life is to throw off the chains of our oppressive external circumstances and return back to the natural state. These ideas weren't that mainstream in the 18th and 19th century, but in the 20th century, they've become really influential as a result of the influence of a group called the post-structuralists in academia. I don't know if you know who this man is, but um, he's arguably the most influential academic of the 20th century. Um, his, his name is Michel Foucault, and um, he's been cited more than a million times in articles on Google Scholar. He has redefined the humanities, you could argue. His influence is seen in philosophy, sociology, geography, history, theology, pol political science. Across the board, the ideas of Foucault are probably the most influential in the academic world right now. He's also, more importantly, a, a key theorist that undergirds most of the modern activist movements. So human rights groups, I work as a human rights activist, um, feminist groups, racial justice, a lot of the theory but undergirding what these guys are doing are rooted in Foucault and then uh, academics who followed him, so um, people like Judith Butler. And so they're very much in the mainstream of the cultural zeitgeist and they are increasingly being turned into slogans that kids, when they get to university, they, they're given trainings which mean that they become pretty good at um, rattling out the, uh, the dogma. And the first core insight in Foucault is fairly simple. It's the idea that knowledge is power. So post-structuralists post argue that the relationship between what society views to be true and those who are in power is symbiotic. It's quite, it is, I think this is correct, to be honest. The powerful shape what we perceive to be true, and those who are on the side of truth in society are those who tend to hold power. And there's a kind of dialectical process that happens there. So in the, for example, in the Middle Ages, you have the papacy. They were in power. 
Um, and they were partially in power because they determined what the world thought to be true. But then because they determined what the world thought to be true, they retained their power. Um, Foucault wrote a famous book about the history of madness, where he argued that the, um, how society defined madness changed with time. And so the scientists who defined madness had an enormous amount of power because ultimately, you know, if you, if you define what is insane and what isn't insane, you can decide who goes to the mental asylums. Um, and so that was the first key idea, and that's been very, very influential. The second is that knowledge is entirely socially constructed. What this means is that truth is not absolute in Foucault's scheme, uh, but rather subjectively defined by your society. It means that, and on a positive note, it means that oppressive norms can start to be questioned and deconstructed. Um, and that's why the ideals appeal. There's a real, there's loads of truth in them. I mean, if you look at Victorian, Victorian gender norms, they were perceived to be right and proper. Moral, moral absolutes, moral truths about how society worked, dictated by the people in power, the patriarchal leaders of 19th century Britain. But they were arbitrary and socially contingent. And Foucault's ideas, adapted by feminism, um, have helpfully critically deconstructed much of what was oppressive in that era. And I think we can all agree that society is, is better off for it. However, the, the problem is, and the, the danger that lies within this way of thinking is that the deconstruction project doesn't really have an anchoring rod on truth. It doesn't really know what it's deconstructing for. It's just deconstruction for the sake of it. And uh, you're not really sure what they're trying to build. Um, We've been told that we should be critically skeptical of basically all of the institutions. And I think we even see it in church at the moment. We see, we see people much more skeptical of their leadership than they would have been 50 years ago. And, and that's not always a good thing, because if we're skeptical of church, family, society, but not really given anything uh, to hold as an anchoring rod for truth, we're in a pretty shaky position. And this is where modern Gnosticism has come in. We can't trust anything external to who we are. So what do we do? We look on the inside. We be who we want to be. We do it our own way. We live our own truth and we live our best life. Because our culture has deconstructed all of the external sources of truth and been left purely with the internal subjective self-definition, we've, we've left with a situation where we um, essentially look on the inside to find what is right and we, we trust our own intuitions. Now, there's an obvious flaw if you really run the logic uh, with that, that, I mean, why would you trust your own intuitions in a world where everything's socially constructed? But people don't tend to go there. And in his famous book, After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre points out that this leaves us with a moral world where each claim about what is right and wrong is essentially just an expression of our emotional intuitions. It means that if, if I say one thing is right and you say another thing is right and we both feel it very strongly, we don't really have any way of... Uh, coming to consensus. We just end up having uh, shouting at each other. And it, I think you could argue that the fact that we've lost the ability to have um, moral reasoning, really, in our society is one of the reasons that our political debates are so toxic. Another weakness, I think, in this worldview is the fact that it has very little resilience. Many of you will know that um, our dad died a few years ago. And... Um, I don't think that the blind, pitiless indifference of a meaningless universe would have provided much comfort for us. 
neither do I think that me telling myself that I'm the best or whatever it is that, you know, the, the kind of uh, fluff you get from Disney um, would, would, would ask of us. I don't, just don't think, that, don't think that would have cut it, if I'm honest. And we're entering, um, and, and I think we all felt this, we've had the pandemic, and we're entering uh, a century where things are going to be harder than they have been perhaps for our parents. And I think the egocentric nature of the modern Gnostic worldview has worked well for boomers, whose lives have got better and who've been able to distract themselves uh, with, life com- with life's comforts. I am not convinced that in our century their story is going to be the same. And I think we're going to find that anxiety is going to spike because people are trying to define their own truth and they're trying to fo- root their own meaning outside of any other mores. And th- there's very little resilience in, in, the, in the fragile worldview that our peers have been pitched. So what does a Christian response to these ideas look like? Um, I think, as I've already said, there are, there are good things in postmodern philosophy and the simple truth that social norms are con- socially constructed is true. And that is something that we should embrace and we should be in favour of the fact that the 19th century... Um, social and cultural norms around race and gender have, are no longer the status quo. And I think it's really important, because one of the things that I've observed in this debate is that often you have kind of two sides. You have the right-wing guys who are very scared of critical theory, you read it in The Spectator or whatever, um, and they um, make all of that project sound like it's evil, when actually a lot of the people who, in our generation, who have embraced those ideas are very much just good people who want to see justice. But the flip side, yeah, the flip side is that there are, there are dangers, and the dangers lie in the total drive and the total picking apart of what society has known to be true. And, and unfortunately, you also look at the, um, the background of some of these theorists, and a lot of them came from kind of a French Marxist tradition, which means that Christianity was the enemy, and it means that there has been this kind of anti-Christian impulse at the heart of, um, of that ideology, which is another reason to be potentially concerned. The truth is that as Christians, we believe that power is a natural part of the universe. We're not, we're not saying that all power should be totally deconstructed. We just believe there's a right way of it being constructed. And it's called God's kingdom. It's a kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's a kingdom where justice will rule and the lamb will sit on the throne It's one which flips oppressive ideas of power on their head because we have a servant king. And so we believe that power is part of the universe and we believe there is a good king. And that means that we sit in a different place to our peers who don't have any of that. They don't have the good king. Because that's what everyone's crying out for. But there are dangers for us and for our theology, I think. And it's because... Within the church, people are sometimes in danger of taking the methods of the post-structuralists and applying it to areas of theology where, honestly, it shouldn't be applied. Obviously, one of the reasons for this, and again, as, as with all these things, there are, there are good underlying reasons, even if the, the fruit is poor, is the polarization in the United States at the moment. 
The failure, I think, of American evangelicals to have the nuance in their thinking to delineate between what is kind of a gun-toting Republican political construct and what is a pure core area of biblical theology has meant that liberally-minded young people have taken to almost throwing the baby out with the bathwater and deconstructing everything. Um, and, and the danger with this is that we get to a place where people say, I, I, I don't really trust scripture. I don't really trust my church leaders. I don't really trust the authority of tradition. I've, I've listened to some nice, fairly theologically thin worship songs, and I think I can build my own form of Christianity out of that. And you see it, you see it time and again, people picking apart. It makes me really sad. I was sat recently with a friend who said, oh, I, don't, I don't think the resurrection, it I don't think it really matters. I don't think it matters whether it happened. And he's, he's, part of, uh, he's part of our church at uni. He's, he's a Christian. But he's reached the point where because he started just picking apart piece by piece the truths of Scripture, he has landed himself in the place where he doesn't even believe that Jesus died and rose again anymore. And so to some degree, today's talk is about two questions. How do we, how do we derive truth in a culture which says, define your own? And why is the Christian offer better than any other? And, and ultimately, I, I want to spend a little bit of time in case there are people here who are uh, in the process of deconstructing their belief in Scripture, just looking at why I think it's the way, the best, and why I think you can trust it. Briefly, I'm just going to give three. Obviously, there are very, very good sermons out there on this, and you could talk about it for an hour. Um, but first, Scripture is astonishingly internally coherent. This is a, uh, a map of all of the cross-references in the Bible. Uh, it's quite beautiful. It's almost like a work of art. And I think there are 63,799, according to Google. Um, and I just love it that you read Isaiah written 600 years before the life of Jesus, and you see, um, you, see, you see the king's story written out in advance. Um, there's a beautiful symmetry and uh, coherence to scripture that gives it uh, additional weight, I think. Secondly, as a history student, or a history graduate now, um, I've thought about the, uh, this, this is another of the uh, internal coherence maps. I just quite like them there. Um, I've thought about the question of the historicity of the Gospels in, in some depth, and I do think it's important to say that there, is, there are very few better um, bits of ancient history in terms of like reliability. People have pit, tried to pick holes in the, in the Gospels for, for centuries, but you know, Mark, Matthew, and Luke were written between 20 and 40 years after Jesus' life. John, 30 to 60 years. To put this into context, Tiberius Caesar's, the, the best source we have was 80 to 85 years after his life. Alexander the Great, 400 to 450 years. In terms of ancient source material, the fact that we've got material that was written within a, within a generation is quite remarkable, actually. Um, and, and the common myth that the Gospels were chosen at random is, is total nonsense. Um, in the year AD 160, Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, talked about the fact that there were only four Gospels. And even 
uh, rewind back further, AD 95, so within six years of Jesus' life, Clement, the Bishop of Rome, quotes the Gospels, Acts, and a number of Paul's letters in a, church, in a letter to the church in Corinth. So that's 60 years later. It's within a, within a couple of generations. The church was, was, was reaching towards the canon. And so we, we're talking about a book that is not arbitrarily chosen. Dan, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code is, is total nonsense. And the, we, we're in a place where I think, as historical texts go, we, we, there are very few that are better. But, I, but for, for me, in some ways, the, the main reason I trust the Bible is because I've seen it work. And I know so many people who've seen it work. I was talking to my grandfather recently, and he said, I asked him, what would be your one piece of advice for, um, for guys our age group? And he said, take the most of the privilege of daily meeting the Lord. He went on to say, coming to Scripture is not dry reading. It is about having an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus daily. And I see in his life the fruit of it. He's a man who's seen people's lives changed as a result of his ministry. And I think when you look through church history, from John Wesley, Billy Graham, the great revivals, every single one has come in a church which is yielded to Scripture. People's lives are changed by the power of God, revealed through Scripture. And I, I, I have a... Um, I started taking, when I was 20, uh, just writing down notes of different people that I'd met's testimonies. And it's one of the, one of the reasons that I, I hold on, I, I know that Jesus is Lord, is because I have so many stories of the way that the living Lord Jesus that we worship has changed people's lives for the better. Charles Henry Spurgeon said this about reading scripture. He said, I beseech you to let your Bibles be everything to you. Carry this matchless treasure with you continually and read it and read it and read it again and again. Turn to its pages by day and by night. Let its narratives mingle with your dreams. Let its precepts color your lives. Let its promises cheer your darkness and let its divine illumination make glad your life. And this leads me back full circle to where I started today. We started with the question, have you considered the full glory of what it means to say that we can trust the Bible and that it's our source of truth? That we can say with confidence that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we don't have to construct our own truth, but that we worship the one who defines truth. The verses. As, as Matt's video showed us, that this term series have been anchored around are in Colossians 1. And they say this, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created in, through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. 
And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I just want to spend two, two, three minutes meditating on that. He's the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? It means we see the character of God in the face of Jesus. The kindness of the king. A king who goes to the margin, who loves the leper, who binds up the brokenhearted, and who sets the oppressed free. The king who stopped and cooked his friends fished, fish, eyes shining with love. The king who says, do not strive, you are loved. I walk with you, I go with you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's light. But he's not only kind, he's also supreme. He's the creator. He's the king, and in him all things were created, in the, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. We look at the stars, or the mountains, or the sea, in all of their glory, and we know they only give us a tiny glimpse of the mind of the genius who created them all. We look at the best of music or art, and we're given a window on the transcendent and our creator. And when we see the hard things, when we see the moral degradation of our political class, when we look at climate change, we know that we have a king who is high above it all, who there are, there are no thrones higher than his. I could go on. He's, he's a reconciler. He's our guide. He's our counselor. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He gives us eternal hope. And he's with you every day. I never get past the fact that if Christianity is true, there is literally nothing better. For too long, we've lived as a church that is slightly ashamed or embarrassed by the gospel that we worship and by the king that we worship. But our faith blows literally every other alternative out of the water. And so as I finish, let's stand with Paul and be those who say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation for us who believe. Amen.